We are back on Let Your Voice Be We are and, back and on Let Your Voice Be Heard. That's why you're hungover. <laughs> because the only thing you can think and sing about, even on a Sunday morning, is Henny and Apple Juice. Crown Apple. Thank you very much. <laughs> we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. Yes, I am hungover. Yes, God is still working on me. <laughs> yes, I am never drinking again until possibly later today. But you know what? That is not what we are here to talk about. Selena is a hater because she walks around like she's on Molly when she doesn't do any drugs. <laughs> So why can I smoke, drink a little whiskey? I don't get it. Guys, we are here, and this is our last show for the year oh 2016. My God. Oh, my and God. It is. I am really sad. I'm really sad because we might not see 2017 because Donald Trump is really taking China off, and they might decide to send America a fade. And I'm also really sad because Donald Trump is going to be president of the United States. And Donald Trump is really kind of like, I don't know, a dictator? He hates a the fascist? media. A fascist? Yeah, yeah. A racist? A demagogue? Uh, I can't say, uh, Professor Harding, Professor Harding got on me for calling him garbage. I will not call him garbage. I will say that he's stupid, though. And I can say that because he can't spell. I mean, you can <laughs> say that some of the policies or people he's picking um, are not good picks, in your opinion. Yes. Um, which would be the same as you. I mean, I, it, it's it's mincing words, but, you I, you know, I think his policies are garbage. That's a little yes. different than saying he's garbage. Right? That's true. And Brother Leroy, I saw Brother Leroy yesterday, by the way, and he told me, to, he said, don't call Donald Trump stupid because and trash because he's not trash. Call out his policies. Right. Call out the people he's appointing. Now that's what I've been trying to talk to you about, you know, but, uh, you know, for the past few weeks. You also been telling me to hug white people, Alyssa. I didn't tell you to hug white people. She didn't tell me to hug white people. But guys, anyway, why am I talking about Donald Trump? Well, I'm not talking about Donald Trump because we're talking about Donald Trump today. We are not talking about Donald Trump. I promise you. I'm actually talking about Donald Trump because I wanted you to be able to relate to someone who is going to be in power in this country who is A, ignorant, B, power hungry, C, money hungry, D, corrupt, and then E might possibly use dangerous weapons to attack people he doesn't like. Why is that relevant? Because in Syria, their dictator over there is doing the same exact exact thing. And how bad are things right now? Well, there was one one area where the rebels who are fighting this dictatorship were doing okay. They were they weren't winning, but they weren't necessarily losing. Well, that stronghold Aleppo is more or less gone now. So, after after years of, in, of fighting. The, the Syrian rebel forces have finally taken a serious loss. And what's happening is not only did they lose like all the ground that they had in Aleppo, but now the government forces are coming in there and slaughtering people at the ready. Everyone. They're killing soldiers. They're killing women. They're killing children. They're killing people who have nothing to do with this. And how serious is it? Some children are actually getting access to Twitter and they are tweeting that I am about to die right now. I am afraid you need to do something. And all of a sudden, an issue that many people have been touch and go about, they're really passionate and they want America to do something. And to the point that even President Obama talked about it in his last press conference of 2016. So because this is such a big issue and because a lot of people might not actually know what's going on, we want to make sure we brought this conversation into the studio with you in 2016, just in case we don't make it to 2017. And also so you can be engaged, inform and take power. And to help us with this conversation is someone I know very well. This is a handsome man. He has the second best hair in New York State. My good friend Roberto has the first best hair. Sorry about that. And he is also a professor. And he is also really smart. And he also has nice eyes. His name is, is Steven. I'm sorry. Were you hitting on him? <laughs> I have a girlfriend You, see, that you I seem love. pretty fond of Steven, Stanley. First, first of all, I have a girlfriend who and I love. And by the way, there's no such thing as first best. It's just the best. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's unprecedented, Alyssa. <laughs> it is unprecedented. Thank you. But as I was saying... 
I have a girlfriend who I love very much, but if I were single, I might give him my number and he might not call me. So, guys, to help us have this conversation, we have Stephen Pampanilla. I like saying his name like that. To help us in the conversation. Stephen, say hello to our one listener. How are you? How's everyone doing? Hey, Steven. Good to have you back. FYI, Steven was also our featured guest when we talk about the battle in Mosul. So now he Mosul. is back. Mosul. Mosul. Now he is back. Mosul. Thanks. So we both got it wrong, Stanley. Thank you, Alyssa, for Mosul correcting talk. both of us. I have to correct your spelling, your grammar. <laughs> I'm a mess, guys. I'm a mess. We need to talk about the education system <laughs> in this country. Yeah. God is still working on me. <laughs> I'm kidding. Speaking of smart people, Stephen is very smart. Stephen, listen, I'm not someone who knows a lot of things. I don't read books. I think books are for losers. Um, don't so, my students that, Come on. Shh, shh, I hope they're not listening. What I what I'd like to know though is, first of all, we talked we talked about some trouble going on in the, in the Middle East, and people are starting to see things that's on Twitter and in a couple of news articles that decide to cover this and not Donald Trump and getting his butt kissed by Kanye West. What is happening on the ground in Syria that we should be so concerned about right now? So uh, the Syrian civil war has uh, progressed in a way that has uh, played to the uh, success, effectively, of Bashar al-Assad, the uh, president of Syria, uh, as well as his uh, patrons overseas, uh, Iran and Russia, uh, in taking over the city of Aleppo. Aleppo is the largest city in Syria. Uh, they effectively denied the rebels uh, the ability to claim that they can represent um a significant portion of the Syrian people and hold um, some of the most important pieces of Syrian territory. So um, the rebellion effectively is in, is in bad shape, um, but that doesn't mean necessarily that the civil war will end. The rebels still hold other territories uh, in Syria. Uh, one rebel group, um, which is sort of aligned with al-Qaeda, but those connections are a little fuzzy. The rebels like to downplay those, um, controls the province of Idlib. Uh, Syrian Kurds control the northeast of the country, and then, of course, um, uh, in other eastern forces of the country, you have ISIS, the Islamic State. Um, so the war isn't over. It's still ongoing. Um, but certainly the war is—Assad, um, effectively, is winning the war at this point. Um, he's not going anywhere. He's not going to lose power. Um, he, he's, he's, he's effectively being successful. Well, Stephen, I want to jump in for a second. And you keep talking about Assad. Um, I'm not going to say his first name because I'm afraid I'm going to butcher it very Bashir badly. Al-Assad. Bashir Okay, I wasn't Bashir al-Assad. I was afraid I was going to say Rashad Salam, who was a football player for the <laughs> Chicago Bears a couple years ago. But Bashir al-Assad, there's this big, like pretty much a civil war going on. What is so bad about Bashir al-Assad? That's a serious so question. Yeah, so, so Assad actually, it, it's fascinating. Assad, uh, before the war breaks out, Assad is someone who tries to set the West in many ways, to, uh, to have display himself as a kind of modern, uh, forward-leaning, forward-thinking, progressive leader, still a dictator, but let's not be uh, having disillusions about that. Uh, but he was someone who would fly to London, fly to Paris. Uh, uh, he was an, opto- uh, an ophthalmologist by training, um, uh, you know, has a, a fashionable family. Um, but then uh, Assad, effectively, in the Civil War, um, as the rebellion breaks out as part of the Arab Spring in 2001, um, brutally represses uh, any dissidents, uh, any, um, any, any attempt to effectively demand uh, democracy, uh, their respective individual rights. Um, Assad kind of reverts back to his dictatorial tendencies. And it's not just him. Uh, Bashar al-Assad is uh, the son. Uh, his father was also uh, the ruler of Syria. He, too, ruled with an iron fist um, for many, many decades uh, when he passed away Bashar al-Assad becomes president. Um, so Assad effectively has reverted to his uh, authoritarian, dictatorial 
past uh, and tendencies with the Civil War, um, and where there were moments at some point uh, in the conflict where it seemed that a, the, the possibility of a democratic Syria might emerge, um, those, uh, that, that hope effectively has been displaced on the one hand by Assad, but on the other hand also by the rise of groups like ISIS uh, and extra- uh, excuse me, radical extremists who want to overthrow any kind of democratic Syrian state as well. So, guys, if you are just tuning in, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 98.3 FM, WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. We are talking to Stephen Pampanilla about the terror in Aleppo. And if you want to call in with a question or a concern, the number is 212-650-6903. You can also hit us up on Facebook Live, leave a comment, we will read it, or on Politically Preposterous, or, of course, on Twitter at BeHeard underscore radio. So one of the things that Stephen mentioned while he was talking was he mentioned the Arab Spring. And what he's talking about is pretty much there was an uprising in several countries in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt against dictatorial leadership Libya Libya, Egypt um, and uh, uh, almost in Turkey Tunisia Tunisia, somewhat in Mm -hmm. Turkey that's a little bit murky to talk about at the moment but where they tried to overthrow their governments Egypt to some extent was successful they elected someone who from the Muslim Brotherhood didn't like it overthrew him and now it's under military control and in other places, it's places that started to pick up as well, including Syria. So when he talks about Assad really like threw down the iron fist after the Arab Spring, that's what he's talking about. Alyssa? Yeah, so I, I just wanted to ask you something. It's a little different than what we've been talking about, but I was ho- hoping for some clarity on it, which is, on one hand, you have people talking about the U.S. being too involved and essentially being a proxy war that's being fought between the United States and Russia and other actors like, for example, Iran. On the other hand, you have a group of people saying that the U.S. hasn't done enough and that you know, a big reason why uh, 500,000 civilians are now dead and more than half of the nation's population is displaced is because the United States has not done enough to support the rebels um, and to support those fighting against Assad. And then obviously you have the issue of ISIS that comes into play also. Um, Maybe you can clarify, but like what's really going on? Is it a situation where the U.S. is doing or is is very involved in the sense that it is sort of turning into a proxy war? Or is it a situation where the U.S. hasn't done enough, or is the media just making this too, like, black and white when it's really not as black and white as they're making it seem? Uh, that's a great question, Alyssa. So it's, it's in a way, it's, it's not black and white. Um, the United States has, um, has certainly taken action in Syria to support the rebellion. Uh, the United States has supplied uh, different rebel factions that it has uh, sought to cultivate that would be more consistent with its national interests. Um, supplying them with uh, with arms, for example, anti-tank missiles to fight uh, Assad's army, um, supplying them with uh, financing, training to some degree as well. Um, and that's been done in conjunction with other U.S. allies in the region, namely uh, Turkey, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia to some extent. Um, so it's provided those kinds of material uh, support to certain Syrian rebel groups. Um, but on the other hand, um, of course, many people have criticized the United States for not doing more for uh, for using military force, engaging in uh, military intervention um, to attack Assad um, for using violence against civilians in utterly brutal ways. Um, and the, the highest peak, let's say, of those calls for intervention occurred in 2003, I'm sorry, excuse me, 2013, when Assad uses chemical weapons against uh, the suburbs of Damascus, the capital of Syria. Those suburbs have been rebelling against him, and to some of them are still are. Um, that came... That denial of force, where the United States didn't use force, that came one year after, in 2012, where uh, Barack Obama says to Assad and does so publicly, 
we're going to draw a red line in Syria and say, if you use chemical weapons, then we will attack you. The United States effectively didn't follow up on that threat. So many people have criticized the Obama administration effectively for making something like an empty threat um, and for eroding its own credibility in terms of um, in terms of checking Assad's uh, ability to use any kinds of violence against uh, against civilians. Um, so what you have really here is there are some forms of U.S. intervention, certainly, um, but some people have criticized the United States for not being strong enough and sending clear signals to Assad about what U.S. intentions are um, regarding uh, the protection of civilians. And there's one other element to this that I should should mention as well. Um, in 2011, when the when the rebellion begins and Assad brutally begins to repress it. The Obama administration comes out and says very publicly that Assad must go, that he can no longer rule Syria, that he's lost legitimacy to rule. The United States, though, never really uh, develops a policy effectively and takes action to realize that objective. The United States, while it supported some uh, rebel factions, it doesn't want to support them completely because it's worried about uh, what it's worried about is that some of those factions could defect um, either to groups like ISIS or the uh, Al Qaeda affiliate in Syria as well. So the United States hasn't been clear about what its priorities are, what its objectives are, and this has left a very muddled kind of position for the United States. Um, and, and so people like Assad essentially have taken advantage of this and used force to the maximum degree possible, thinking that the United States simply isn't going to do anything to stop him from, uh, from killing civilians. Well, why is it our responsibility to do something? Why can't England go fight them? Why can't France go fight them? Why can't, why can't Germany? Why is it the United States' responsibility? That's, that's one. And then mm-hmm. two... Is Obama right that some of these rebel groups might not actually be the most moderate, so to speak, if they if they take over leadership in Syria? So, regarding to why the U.S., so historically the United States since 1945, the end of World War II, has been seen effectively as uh, the defender of what we can call a liberal world order, a liberal world order in which uh, uh, decisions are made in international politics on the basis of uh, international institutions, some kinds of uh, dialogue, deliberation, uh, and an international order in which human rights are upheld and respected by all states. And certainly that international order becomes quite strong uh, at the end of the Cold War, when the United States is effectively the last superpower standing. It's more or less assumed, and the United States wants to promote this idea, that these values of human rights um, should be upheld and protected worldwide undertake a series of humanitarian interventions in the 1990s to uphold these rights as well, uh, thinking here about the interventions in Bosnia and Kosovo, uh, the 2011 intervention in Libya to protect the city of Benghazi from being conquered by uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi was undertaken under the same uh, kind of pretenses. And certainly many people have felt that the United States has overextended itself in the use of force uh, regarding some of these interventions. And Barack Obama, in fact, is one of these people who has developed this kind of critique um, and it's not a bad critique, right? So you look at what happens in Libya in 2011. We intervene. We stop uh, a potential slaughter in Benghazi. But then we continually overuse force and effectively prosecute a war of regime change, where Gaddafi is overthrown by Libyan rebels. Um, after that experience, um, Obama himself, I think, felt kind of burned, right? He didn't think that military force could be used in an effective way, um, even despite the fact that terrible massacres could occur. So he, in fact, I think you can argue becomes a little, uh, basically pulls back from the use of force and, and adopts the kind of posture of, uh, well, you know, the use of force can result in terrible unintended consequences. Um, the policy that the uh, administration adopts here is something called don't do stupid stuff. The last S is a more uh, uh, derogatory term, actually, as you can imagine. But that's the kind of posture they take. So they themselves are kind of pulling back. Um, 
this, you had a second question, and I as well, I was uh, well, going so actually hold on for one second, Stephen, before we get to the second question. So we we do have to go on a quick break. So when we come back, I want you to answer the second part of that question um, about the, these rebel forces. So guys, we're going on a quick break. When we return, Stephen will answer the second part of that question, and then we will shift gears a little bit and ask the question of: Is America ready to go to war? Because that could be where we're heading if we do more than we've done already in Syria. This is let your voice be heard, and this is some music I'm playing. You requested it, so we rewatch. Yeah. Way, way, way up. Turn it all up. Yeah. Look, I got enemies, got a lot of enemies, got a lot of people trying to drain me of my energy. They're trying to take the wave from a with the kid and pray for you. I got girls in real life trying to We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. As I speak to you, my head and my stomach are both doing the cat daddy and it's not feeling very fun. It's your we, own fault. It is my own fault because I shouldn't have drunk in those good ice. It was the ice that got me hungover. Guys, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard and I am here, Stanley Fritz with Alyssa Fuchs, Selena Hill, and of course our intern, Ashanette, who was on her phone making sure the internet works and also streaming us on Facebook Live. And we are having a conversation about the terror and Aleppo, which is in Syria, where rebel forces and citizens and civilians are being slaughtered by their own president or leader prime minister. And to help us with this conversation, because I obviously don't know what I'm talking about 99.9% of the time, we have the great, the intelligent, the handsome, the amazingest hair, Stephen Pampanilia. And Selena <laughs> is hitting on me because she thinks that I am into him. I no, you have a man crush on him. I'm not saying you're into him, but you definitely have a man that crush. That is sexist, Selena. Why is he a man crush? That Why is... can't it just be a crush crush? <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. Stanley, Stanley, you're, you're a beautiful man, too, dude. It's all good, right? It's a bromance. It's official. Steven go. has responded to your, your come-ons, and now you guys have a bromance. You know what, Selena? You're objectifying the both of us, and I don't like that. So, Steven, right. before we went on break, I asked you a question of, well, is, like, is Obama right to be suspicious of some of these rebel forces? And what I'm saying, for those of you guys who don't know, in Syria, you have uh, different factions of rebel forces fighting Bashad, trying to overthrow him. And America has shown some hesitance to really train them or really let go all in on any kind of group because they're afraid that they might turn out to be evil. Kind of like the way that Osama bin Laden and his crew turned out to be evil after America trained them and gave them guns back in the 1970s. So is President Obama right to have those kind of suspicions? So uh, it depends, in fact. I think, I think Obama and, and many people in the American foreign policy community consider uh, the idea of sponsoring foreign proxies in a civil war um, something that they've learned from, particularly because of what you just mentioned, the, the sponsoring of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, during that war um, in the 1980s. And, of course, some of those elements you know, evolve into becoming al-Qaeda, particularly um, people like bin Laden. Um, so there, there's a fear here for the United States of sponsoring groups in the Civil War, not knowing what the unintended consequences of uh, that kind of action could be, how they might radicalize in the future. Um, and certainly some Syrian groups in the, in the uh, Civil War, some rebels, uh, they are violent extremists. Uh, you have uh, the, uh, what was Jafar al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate. They're more or less kind of aligned uh, with al-Qaeda currently. You certainly have ISIS as well. They're over there in eastern Syria. Um, and the Obama administration is worried that if they sponsor some of the other rebel groups effectively, um, they might get taken over by those more violent, uh, violent radicals um, who threaten American interests, want to overthrow the United States, 
Um, so there's, there's that potential issue. But um, there's another issue here as well, though. Um, Bashar al-Assad wants the United States to think that all the rebels are effectively violent extremists, that there are no rebels who want a more democratic Syria, a Syria that respects human rights. And to achieve that goal, he's treated all the rebels effectively as if they are terrorists. Um, and doing so, he's sought to use violence against them and bomb civilians and attack civilians as well to demonstrate to those civilians that the more, let's call, moderate rebel groups can't protect them uh, and that they should either flee the country completely and become refugees or simply side with Assad. Some civilians might say, well, instead of those two things, well, then I'll just join uh, the violent radicals, like ISIS, because they seem to be the only groups that can hold territory and defend civilians from ISIS. So it's, it's, it's a very complicated process in which Certainly, the United States doesn't want to play, doesn't want to uh, sponsor future potential enemies. But in avoiding working with some of the rebels, there's a fear here that the United States, in fact, is playing into Assad's strategy to effectively paint all the rebels with a very broad brush uh, as being violent radicals who uh, who are bent on a kind of religious state. Um, it does seem like all the bad guys are doing the best job at protecting territory. Selena? No, no, no. It's true. And, and like you were saying, Stephen, it's a very nuanced, complicated, and, and layered uh, situation there. And you know, it's hard to, hard to find. Like, how do you really, really address something like this? How do you, you, you know, make sure that you're involved but not involved to the point where you're, you're, you're it becomes a proxy war and you're perpetu- uh, perpetuating the war even more so. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on um, just basically like the humanitarian side of this and, you know, as we see more of the victims dying, civilians, children, and them expressing themselves, and we keep seeing this on social media, would you say that some of the rebel groups, groups should start to retreat, and by not doing so, they're prolonging the, law, the war? So for many of the rebels, you know, they don't have a choice at this point. Um, if they... Uh, they could retreat potentially and kind of basically give up. They could go to uh, Turkey uh, or other uh, Gulf states that have been supporting the insurgency, certainly. Um, that's, a, that's a possibility for some of them, but many of them feel that Syria is their home. Uh, they feel that they want to defend Syria from Assad, uh, Assad who has killed uh, millions of Syrians, uh, hundreds of thousands, I should say, of Syrians, um, you know, destroyed cities, destroyed these people's homes. Many of them feel like they don't want to leave um, their homes, which have been under attack, and they want to defend, possibly until um, until they die. Um, and certainly, nonetheless, the, the war that could prolong the war, of course, um, there could be thus more suffering of civilians, more attacks against civilians, uh, the continuation of um, uh, refugee flows out of Syria. Um, those kinds of things aren't, aren't probably going to end anytime soon. Um, but it's hard for the rebels to kind of choose, right, to either leave uh, or to say, um, you know, they would basically be giving up on this war that they've been fighting um, for the past five years. And given that it's consumed their entire lives, it's, that's a probably a very difficult proposition for many of them to accept. Yeah, if I have been fighting someone for seven years, I'm not just about to quit. We going down or we going up. It, there's, there's no other option. Right. So, Alyssa, you had a question? Yeah, no, I was just curious, and this is obviously not, so this is probably something we could spend an entire segment talking about, Word. so maybe you could give us, like, the brief part of it, which is, like, what role is religion playing in this conflict? I know that there's people, like, uh, Bashar al-Assad is part of the Ba'ath Party. Um, there's Shia Muslims. There's Sunni Muslims. There's a lot of different factions of um, different religions there's also Christians, a lot of Christians that live in Syria. So I was just curious as to what role religion is playing and has played throughout this conflict. Right. So let me say first that uh, Syria is uh, a multi-sectarian uh, state. Uh, you have 
uh, you have Sunni Muslims, you have Shia Muslims, Alawites, which are a sect of Shia Islam, uh, Assad is an Alawite, you certainly have Christians, uh, people of this, you know, many different religious dom- denominations. Some people look at this a conflict and they say, well, this is a war where, you know, it's, it's people fighting each other over some kind of ancient religious hatred, um, and assume effectively that, you know, the war is solely about religion. It's not exactly that. Religion is kind of a uh, convenient part to play by different factions in the war to mobilize um, civilians and mobilize followers to strengthen, strengthen one's own political position. So if I can say, as a side, I'm going to defend Syria, uh, Alawites, but also this idea of kind of a secular modern Syria from, you know, these jihadist terrorists, uh, which takes the form of ISIS or al-Qaeda, that presents Assad effectively as the defender of everyone from Sunni extremism. Um, now, all the Sunnis, of course, aren't like that. It's just a very small number of Sunni actors who espouse these beliefs, but they are empowered in the context of a civil war, effectively, themselves to claim, well, we're defending all the Sunnis against, uh, against Shia like Assad, but also against the domination by Iran, which, of course, is the major uh, Shia power in the region um, and is sponsoring Assad, too. So you have in this context of a civil war, certainly, you have these actors claiming religious uh, authority and the defense of one's own religious community, but really, you know, playing the religion card is kind of a power play, right? It's really identifying oneself uh, with one's group and defining one's community in opposition to another religious group, um, and it's effectively using religion in a very political way. In reality, Islam is not a violent religion, right? I mean, every religion has some violent extremists, even Christianity, of course. I mean, the Crusades, effectively, are the greatest example here. Um, so it looks religious, um, but it's really more political than religious, I would say. Thank you for that. And you know what? You are absolutely right. Every religion has some violence issues, especially Christians. No shade, all shade. But I'm not going to get into that because I have a friend who's Christian who I love. Uh, no, it's just like the, I have the conversation with people all the time. The facts are the facts are the facts. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can't look at history and look at historical context and say, oh, well, you know, Christians never did this. He mentioned the Crusades. I mean, yeah. there was obviously uh, plenty of that going on. And, uh, you know, so I would say to those people, mm-hmm. it's not that we're trying to offend you by bringing it up. We're mm-hmm. just trying to point out that this is the history of the world. But for the record, Christians are can be violent and can be extremely petty. A 200-year <laughs> war? Are you serious? Was it really that real? Anyways, guys, I don't want to be stuck on that, but since we are talking about war, I have the gut feeling, and Stephen can tell me if I'm just, just hungover, but I have the gut feeling that if America really had wanted to go all in in Syria, they would have to put boots on the ground. And the minute they do that, they are engaging war with not just Syria, but also Russia and possibly China. I mean, there are already some boots on the ground, but... No, I'm talking about, like, I'm talking about Timberland boots. I'm talking about, like, 10 Tens to, to 15. Yeah, like, that that kind of, like, impact of boots. So, Stephen, tell me if I'm going crazy. So, so it's unclear right now because, of course, the Obama administration is outgoing and the Trump administration is as revolting as saying that sounds. Uh, it's about to take power. Um, and and Trump, Trump is more like Assad in many ways in terms of his ideology. And Well, I shouldn't say ideology. God only knows what Trump's ideology is. But Trump basically looks at uh, this conflict and sees, oh, look, there's a bunch of terrorists. Well, we should side with the part of the war who wants to fight the terrorists. And he's going to see that to basically be a side. And again, also remember that Trump uh, is, you know, has this affinity with Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, they want to kind of, in a sense, band together to oppose terrorism around the world. Um, so so is, are there going to be boots on the ground in Syria? It's not. It's not clear yet. I could certainly see Trump, a Trump administration, taking a much more coercive posture 
with regard to ISIS and with regard to uh, that al-Qaeda affiliate um, also in Syria, are they going to deploy ground troops? I'm, I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at anything that happens in the world at this point. Um, so we wouldn't go to war necessarily with Assad. We wouldn't go to war with Russia. Um, we would probably de- use, co- use violent force in a way that's more targeting ISIS or uh, the al-Qaeda affiliate, um, not necessarily targeting Assad. Though. We're going to leave Assad alone. Assad's not going to leave power. We're not going to challenge him anymore. Listen, like as far as I'm concerned, if you break it, you buy it. We broke Iraq, and now we're stuck with it for as long as we, we need, to be, need to be stuck with it. And if we do that in Syria, it's the same thing. But Alyssa, I know you had another question. Yeah, so I mean, ahead. it was sort of just a follow-up, and you touched upon it. But what is the role in this now Trump-Russia connection that we're seeing? I mean, for the duration, our position was that essentially we were at least in some ways backing the rebel groups under the Obama administration against Bashar al-Assad, who obviously has has connections to uh, President Putin in Russia. Now we are seeing, uh, based on the people that Trump is picking for his transition team, there's going to be a slightly, I shouldn't even say slightly, a a, a vehement pro-Russia shift in American policy. How is that going to come into play in respect to the conflict in Syria and our previous position regarding backing the rebels, um, especially if Trump seems to be in the pocket of President Putin? Right. So, uh, so, so Russia and the United States will collaborate, it seems, in some ways, uh, on the Syrian conflict in ways that they have been unable to before. Um, they're certainly likely to collaborate in terms of fighting um, ISIS and, uh, and the al-Qaeda affiliated also in Syria. That doesn't mean necessarily like U.S. and Russian troops are going to be kind of shoulder-to-shoulder, um, you know, training the Syrian army or something like that. But they're going to they're gonna collaborate to some degree in terms of, well, you're going to attack, quote-unquote, terrorists in this area. Um, Russia, the United States is going to attack ISIS in this area. Um, and so they're going to cooperate to some degree in terms of targeting uh, these different rebel groups, whether they're ISIS or perhaps even more legitimate rebels. Um, Assad is not going to be challenged anymore, it seems, by the United States under the Trump administration. We're going to accept Assad for what he is um, and simply say, well, he's fighting terrorists, so you know what? We should, we should deal with him um, to fight ISIS or any kind of other terrorists that threaten the United States. That makes me really, really sad, and not just because Assad is evil, but also because Donald Trump is stupid, and I dislike him with every fiber in my being. But that's not relevant to this conversation at the moment. However, Stephen, we do have to wrap things up. So just very quickly, if you can tell our listeners what they can do to be active, to help, to just have some kind of impact, if even for something very small, what can they do right now? So uh, what they can do, they can support um, humanitarian relief agencies that are trying to provide aid uh, to Syrian refugees or refugees in conflicts from around the world who uh, have fled Syria. Uh, so we're talking here about, say, uh, the International Red Cross Red Crescent. We're talking about uh, UNICEF, for example, uh, the Office of uh, Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCA for the United, United Nations. Um, you know, those agencies are perpetually underfunded. Agencies, especially like UNICEF, you know, they, they receive donations um, from ordinary people. And they also, of course, we should say they support um, people who aren't necessarily refugees but still need um, you know, children who need access to basic services. Um, we should support these humanitarian agencies providing this uh, aid and relief. Um, and we should also demand here in the United States that the United States opens its borders more to refugees, that we welcome people from other countries who are fleeing persecution, uh, and we accept them as our fellow human beings and provide them with a stable way of life here in the United States. There's no reason why we shouldn't do that unless we believe that all Muslims are terrorists or adopt this kind of Islamophobic um, posture 
that I think you could argue the Trump administration in many ways has. So that requires challenging Trump on his Islamophobia, challenging Trump on his anti-refugee uh, policy that it seems he'll adopt. Um, you know, those kinds of political and humanitarian actions, offering that kind of support, I think that's what people can do now today. Thank you very much for that, Stephen. I think that what you should realize, Stephen, actually, is that we will accept um, refugees into this country. All they have to do is be white. And if they do that, then they can come in right away. If they are brown, if they speak Spanish, if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, they cannot come here because America. No, but the guys, that's not really what I mean or what I feel. Stephen, thank you so much for coming into the show today. Please let us know how we can hear more from you and why we should be getting hair just like yours because your hair is amazing. Stanley, Selena, Alyssa, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Appreciate Thanks, Steve. You guys. Thank you. So we want to wrap this conversation up. Um, we're not going to wrap this topic up. Obviously, there are people dying every single day in Aleppo, and America really hasn't done everything that it could do to address this issue. But we have a couple of questions to answer for ourselves. Do we want to put boots on the ground in Aleppo? And I'm, and I'm not talking about a few hundred or a few thousand. I'm talking about fifty to one hundred thousand boots on the ground. Which means, do we want to engage in another war? And if we do, are we willing to do what it takes? to win and stay because you can't win in two weeks like George Bush thought you could in Iraq and you can't win in 10 years because we're still fighting in Iraq so if we go to Syria and we're going to save these lives be prepared to be in Syria for a very long time a very 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 long time and if we're not ready to make that move then things might have to change as in, in, in so far as how we do foreign policy here um, and that means putting pressure on Trump to stop being a racist and that means to make sure that we are supporting our allies sisters and brothers and the and who practice the religion of Islam and also our sisters and brothers who are just from the Middle East and they just don't like seeing their countries at war I don't know guys it's a tough conversation it's really hard to figure out but at the minimum we have to care so with that being said we're going to go to the news roundup and when we do get to the news roundup i will tell you how i drank too much whiskey but didn't realize it this is let your voice be heard you heard on 90.3 fm whcr the voice of harlem if you are just tuning in i am still struggling strong with my hangover but i'm also here with selena hill Alyssa fuchs ashnet on the internet and of course lara land who's our dreamer you'll hear more about her later on because she does yoga and she's smarter than everyone in here except for <laughs> me of course because i'm a genius so guys now we're having a conversation. What the conversation is about? It's the news conversation. The news roundup conversation. Where we talk about our favorite news stories throughout the week. Things that made us laugh, cry, curse, flip a table, or maybe drink too much whiskey Saturday night and then take a cab home. And if you have a story, you should give us a call at 212-650-6903. Or you can tweet us at BeHerd. Underscore. Radio. Or I'm Facebook Live. Selena, you messed it up. <laughs> you want to get in on that? Up. No. You guys had excellent chemistry. You know what you guys reminded me of just now? The Wayne's brothers? No. Donald Trump and Kanye West. Here's why. Oh, God. So don't as ever, we mentioned. Don't, don't, I get to be Kanye. You have to be Donald no. Trump. Well, I'm not a fan of being Uncle Tom, so that's fine. Well, here's why. Okay, right. So Kanye West. I'm and a fan of being a black man, so. <laughs> right. That's Alyssa's 
inner ego, right, alter ego. Um, so, right, so Kanye West and uh, Donald Trump, they met up at the Trump Tower here in Manhattan earlier this week, and apparently they spoke about life. Now, when press was life. asking um, Kanye, you know, Kanye, so you're with the president-elect, what did you talk about? He was like, he just kept, like, a really mean face and was like, I'm just here for the pictures. And I'm like, what, Kanye? I swear, I saw the <laughs> clip, and I was like, is he on drugs? Yeah, and then I was like, wait, don't answer no, that no, question. He, he, he is. is he is so so the thing is it's been a lot of controversy with kanye meeting up with trump but i've heard some black republicans and conservatives not all of them are crazy stanley well they're all local times well, don't you no, know donald no. can't be racist because he has a black friend right D- no i've heard a lot of you some you know black republicans yes, saying uncle Tom's. well they were saying you know we should not be mad at kanye for, for meeting up with uh but donald trump because he's a coon. this can help black people and he's saying that donald trump will do a lot you for want black curse, people don't you? no i don't stanley I rescue. If, I if Donald Trump called and said, hey, Stanley, I want to talk to you about, I don't know, anything. Come <laughs> down to Trump Tower. Would you go or would you give him the bird? I'm not going to answer that question because whatever I would say would get us canceled. And the CIA <laughs> and, I, and, and Secret Service looking for I me. Mean, like, would so, you go or would you not go? I would hang up. I would. I would. <laughs> I would ask him to repeat himself, then slam my phone so hard it'd probably break in two. Why would I want to talk to a man who's half Cheeto, half KKK textbooks? I don't want to do that. That's one. Two, your Uncle Tom friends need to stop with the BS about Donald Trump is good for black people. Donald Trump is as good for black people as a a gallon of butter covered in butter is for black people. (laughs) Well, well, here's the thing, Stanley. What they're saying is we have a new administration and and what they're saying is what Kanye said is it's better to have a direct line to the president than to not be included as well. He wrote that on Twitter. He didn't say that at the press conference. He was saying he wants to keep an open line of communication, especially when it comes to people of color, schools in Chicago, education. Apparently, these are issues here, that Kanye takes, that, that Kanye is uh, passionate but here's about. here's the thing, which is, he, like, Trump's going to do to Kanye exactly what he did to Al Gore, right? He meets with Al Gore. He tells Al Gore whatever. I don't even know. Al Gore comes out of the meeting saying it was a productive meeting. They talked about important things. They talked about climate change and what does donald trump do the very very next day he appoints a guy to run the epa who (laughs) doesn't believe in climate change and starts talking about like rounding up all these scientists and making sure they get fired so i mean literally that's how i see this meeting with kanye i get it kanye wants to keep an open line of communication but at the same time i feel like it's going to be the same thing he's going to meet with kanye he's going to say all these things to kanye or they're going to talk about life or whatever it is they're talking about and then you know kanye's going to see it as him trying to have an open dialogue and then what does he do he turns around and appoints uh, betsy davos devos whatever her name is who has no experience and wants to essentially privatize all public schools completely so i actually saw that meeting as a huge distraction because it was like not too long before when kanye i mean when donald trump appointed rex tillerson the ceo of exxon mobile as his secretary of state he nominated him Mm -hmm. and instead of the press really actively just delving into how problematic this man is and how problematic he would be as our secretary of state they just chased that little rabbit and was like oh shoot kanye and trump celebrity news this is like front page on our website because the mainstream media press is a failure we do have a call on the line i want to make sure his voice is heard ken roy let your voice be heard uh thanks pc um guys with kanye i don't care i mean with all due respect kanye is just an artist but it is disturbing i just want to say this that trump with black people, Trump has acted a little bit racist. I mean, he's, he's not 
KKK racist Ku Klux Klan. But I do believe stories that, you know, as a former black female contestant stated that on the pageant, that, uh, you know, his, her, his handlers told her that Trump don't like certain black people. I mean, and uh, so with Kanye... It, it, I'm, a, I'm a, I mean, I'm a little bit disappointed because you know this is the same Kanye that said George Bush, Bush too is racist, um, but you know Trump is a man that, well, has some racist notions that you know he he's never apologized to the Central Park Five. Please. Ooh. Yes, you are you are absolutely right. He didn't apologize to the Central Park Five. Selena was like, please, he's never going to apologize to the Central Park Five. Thank what you a, so much, Ken Roy, for calling in and letting your voice be heard. Definitely appreciate your comments there. I don't I don't think Stanley did. I will just push back on the I little did. bit racist part because <laughs> I think it's a lot of bit racist. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I just before we go to our last story about Dylan mm-hmm. Roof, I wanted to tell you there's a new poll out this morning that was conducted by YouGov, and it found that 52 percent of people that include Republicans support stalling the Electoral College vote, which is scheduled to be held tomorrow until the electors can be fully briefed on Russia's interference with the election. I'm not so, really interested in white people's question, like concerns you, about the election because they voted for Trump. How do you assume that those people are all white? Oh, then, they're not like all white, poll. but I'm sure majority, <laughs> a, a big portion of them are white. So the white ones in there, I don't care. The ones that didn't vote or didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, I don't care. We're stuck. We made this decision. Now we got to go in there with a three-year-old because white people want to protect their privilege. And I don't know, people just drank too much the day before election. I don't know. But anyways, guys, we do have to move on because speaking of garbage white people, Dylan Roof was found guilty on all 33 charges. So hopefully he's in an electric hair right now. Um, he's not, obviously. But he will be getting his sentencing a month from now. Selena? So I just wanted to comment. So Stanley has been saying, and he just said right now, hopefully he gets an electric chair. I was saying, you know, there's a big debate. Should he get life in prison or should he be executed? I am not one. I am not a proponent of the death penalty. As I said before in the show, the government can't create life. So I don't think that we should ever be ending anyone's life. And I think that he would suffer more here on Earth being tormented in a prison. And I much rather that. But you know what? To the to the fair of the family if they were like you know i'd rather him die then i respect that i respect your opinion as well stanley i wish they can kill him bring him back to life and kill him again but selena aren't and yes. feel free to like not answer this question but aren't you pro-choice of course what's the difference well i feel like a fetus is a big difference than a person mm-hmm. a full-blown body of you know a baby a person so i would I argue that dylan roof isn't a person he's a fetus no no he's an imbecile no go ahead no, that was a good one, Stanley, but you almost got me, but you didn't. So, <laughs> I mean, so I'll nervous. just add to that. I wanted to address a, f- oh, a few things. I mean, Selena mentioned being tormented in jail. I had said we had a conversation about this the other day, and I said I don't see that happening. More likely than not, he's going to end up being put in protective custody, um, even if he is eventually going to be executed. Now, as for the death penalty, um, you know, and I'll, I'll put it out there, you know, I am against the death penalty in the fact that we execute too many innocent people in this country, the majority are people, the majority of whom are people of color, um, and that our death penalty system is rife with issues um, due to other issues in the criminal justice system, such as pressuring people into false confessions, um, you know, the reli- the non-reliability of eyewitnesses and other, other issues that permeate the entire criminal justice system. Um, that said, uh, that is the reason why in th- 
in practice, I don't think we should have a death penalty because if we even execute one innocent person, that is one person too many. On the other hand, in theory, in a theoretical world where we might have some kind of perfect justice system, I would not be against um, the death penalty in a situation like this where guilt is clear cut. It's in uh, law is a standard known as beyond a residual doubt, which is a higher standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and when there's absolutely no issue about guilt or innocence, I said I don't have a moral objection to the get death penalty as you do. But mm-hmm. I do think it's important to remember that unlike the states, the federal government, from what I understand, still does have the drugs to do a quote unquote proper execution um, and number two like I already mentioned more likely than not he would not be tormented in jail because he'd be put in protective custody. Mm-hmm. The, the other issue which you mentioned briefly is that some of these people that are actually victims that were in the church or that have family members are killed they are against the death penalty due to their own religious beliefs um, and mm, so they are also going to have a say and if the people who um, are victims who are either in the church or had family members were killed come out and they say we don't want him to get the death penalty at the end of the day it's going to be up to the jury to decide but the jury's going to take that into account and that does happen from time to time especially with a religious people and obviously this was a church so we know some of these people are going to come out and say I am pro-life I am against the death penalty and he did a horrible thing but I don't agree with executing him it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out especially since he's going to be representing himself during the death penalty part of this case so keep listening keep watching and and uh, we can obviously talk about this more come January once he is sentenced. Right. No, we definitely will. And that is really interesting. And we'll talk about that. And, guys, if you're listening and want to let your voice be heard, the number is 212-650-6903. And as fast as we said that number, we got a caller on the line. Okay. Miss Deborah has some thoughts about Dylan Roof. Miss Deborah, let your voice be heard. Hi. Hi, Hi. everybody. Uh, I think that he should die. Uh, there's no, you know, rhyme or reason because he's, I mean, he's admitted to killing these people. Now, as for the families, I have heard quite a few black families who have had um, murderers kill their people. And they say, oh, well, they don't want them to die. They, you know, they're Christian and this and that and the other. Well, that would be fine if you were the only person that were murdered by these people. But you're not the only people. This is a group of people that kill black people. So this is bigger than you. So if you want to go home and you want to do whatever it is that you do in your religious faith and pray about it, that's fine. But no, no. It's just like with uh, what's the guy in Oklahoma? Um, I forgot the his Oklahoma name. Oklahoma bombing. Okay, he wanted the death penalty. I would have gave him life. How dare you tell me what you want after you killed all of those people? Miss Deborah, thank you for letting your voice be heard in that. Um, and as always, feel free to call in. Selena? Yeah, I would just say a lot of people think that the death penalty is an easy escape. It's the easy way out. You don't have to deal with the consequences. You don't have to deal with living behind bars. Don't you believe in hell? Well, the thing, well, the, what my faith teaches is that people don't automatically just go to hell. Like, it's like you have to wait to the resurrection. So people are really just sleeping, like sleeping in peace. You know that term, mm-hmm. sleep in peace. People are just resting. They're not conscious. A lit so, it's a, you know, it depends on what you what you believe in. And I would say I'd rather him suffer here on earth. And because I am a Christian, I will say that if he was to ever come to the light and redeem himself and say like you know what i you know what i did was heinous and it was heinous and it was horrible and i am a horrible person for that but i realized 
the consequences and I realized why this is so wrong and try to use this platform for some type of good. You know, we see things like that happening. I don't think it will happen with Dylan Roof, but that has happened before with other people. Selena, I give it to you. You really are guided by your faith. Me, I want to tend to get the Nat Turner treatment as far as executions go. Hang right. him, flay him, do all the worst things you can do. Keep his head and, and hold it as a message. That's what he deserves. And that's what any white supremacist or anyone who perpetuates that kind of hatred deserves. And I really have no like no issue with, with saying those kind of things because when you perpetuate hate and you kill people because you're ignorant, you deserve to suffer the full force of those consequences. Because if we keep on these situations where people are killing other people of color and then they're walking away from it, whether it's because you stay in prison or you don't even go to jail, it's only a matter of time before someone else gets mad and blows up. That's what happens. So you think uh, punishing him with execution is, will actually s prevent other people from targeting no, people of color? No, 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 I do not think it will stop people from targeting other people of color. But it will say that, hey, we're not going to let people come after you. Look at what happened to, to um, Michael Slager. He just he shot some guy in the back five times on camera and it was a mistrial. He's going to get tried again. He is yeah. and he'll but, go to jail but, more than likely. But what's, what's happening that the first mistrial sends a message to a lot of people that says we don't care. And if the wrong person gets that message, they're going to do something. No, I agree with that. But I will say that people that commit these t acts of terror are usual, usually suicidal or homicidal and they mm -hmm. usually want to die. That's like yeah. we see that happen all the time, especially as Sandy Hook. So and the thing is, even in states that have the death penalty they don't have less crime committed there so it's not a big deterrent well i will say if you guys are listening and this is a conversation that you think is interesting and you want us to continue as a larger segment let us know because we definitely want to hear what your feedback is and what you have to say but i think that's a good point when they apprehended dylan roof he actually was planning on killing himself he never got the chance to do so before he was apprehended so on that note i think we have to take a quick break but when we come yes. back we will be talking about hillary clinton's stunning loss and the downfall of the DNC. Definitely. We're talking about the future of the Democratic Party right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And of course, if you want to let your voice be heard, you can call us up at 212-650-6903 or you can tweet us at beheard underscore radio um, or you can hit us up on the Facebook fan page which is facebook.com slash LYVBH or on the Facebook Politically Preposterous fan page, which is facebook.com slash politically preposterous. And just tell you really quick that we are getting a comment um, from Patrice that she loved your butter on butter comment. <laughs> and full disclosure, Patrice, I love you. Patrice is my aunt. Aw, <laughs> Aunt Patrice. Aunt Patrice, but I, I, love I call you. her Aunt Patty, but I was just going by her regular name because, um, you know, that's how we talk <laughs> when people leave comments on Facebook. All right, guys, so we are going on a quick break. When we come back, we'll be having some more conversations, this time about the election. Prepare for me to be mad again. <laughs> WHCR 90.3 FM, New York. Sacred. 
Is this Lincoln Park? We're trying to speak to white voters. Oh, my God. That's why you did that. <laughs> yeah. We are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. We are having a very important and intense conversation about why Hillary Clinton lost, how Donald Trump won, and the future of the Democratic Party. Now, the reason I say the future of the Democratic Party is because things aren't looking too good for us when it comes to Congress, the executive branch, governorships, even local uh, local and state levels. Um, and, and I wanted to get uh, Chad's voice back in here. We have him on the line again. That's Chad R. McDonald. Uh, the question I wanted to ask is, you know, why are Dems losing across the country? What are your thoughts on that, Chad? Do we still have Chad online? I think he fell asleep because we had him on hold so long. So while we wait for Chad to come back, I will say that one of the reasons that we've lost these local races is because Democrats don't invest in local races. They don't invest in local races. They don't invest, invest in candidates. And a lot of Democratic voters don't vote in local elections. Or at least local elections tend to have an older voting lean, which we know Democrats tend to suffer when it comes to getting older voters. So if Democrats want to see some shift in who's winning elections, they A, have to start pumping money into it and like really like bringing people up. Like Alyssa, who should run for office, and they should be putting money into whatever campaign she runs. Alyssa? Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with that, and I thank you for using me as an example. I appreciate that. I mean, I'll also say this, which is, you know, I just started reading a book, um, which I literally am one chapter into. It's called Dark Money, right? And it starts out talking about um, Obama winning the election in getting inaugurated in 2009. And at that time, it also talks about Republicans being completely out of power, just like Democrats are now, right? Um, they did not control the House. They did not control the Senate. They did not control a lot of governorships. And then it talks about what they did to bring themselves back into power. And a large part of that was that they were funded by corporate dark money, right? And so obviously money is an issue. And we've talked at length about this. And that allowed them to essentially win um, mm. back in 2010 with the rise of the Tea Party um, through donations from dark donors, from the Koch brothers, through people like Sheldon Adelson. Um, like I said, I'm only a chapter into the book, but it literally the book starts out talking about the, the Republicans being out of power and be looking at their party, figuring out what they needed to do. And ultimately what they ended up having happen is a lot of money being injected um, into the system by large donors and convincing people, and for the most part, white working class people that would benefit from Democratic policies, that the Democrats were in some ways trying to hurt them, or that, you know, this racial thing, as you have pointed out at length, Stanley, there's a famous quote which says, uh, by FDR, which says, if you can convince a poor white man that he is even, uh, that that your policies essentially will be better, and that he is even better than the black man, he will vote for you, even when he is voting against his own interests. I'm obviously botching the quote. I'm paraphrasing it. You could go look up the actual quote. And that's essentially what they did. And so because they won in 2010, they were able to come back into power. They were able to do the gerrymandering because 2010, remember, is the year that the census happened. Um, and so they redistricted a whole bunch of things. Um, and that allowed them to get into a situation where they were able to win a lot of governorships and win a lot of House races and why the Democrats have not been able to take back the House. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know how Democrats inject that kind of money in, but I think they still need to figure out how to win these people back because as I pointed out earlier the data suggests that if the Democrat wants to win wants to win back the Rust Belt it should not go chasing after the white working class men which Joe Biden would disagree with me on that but the party should instead spend its energy figuring out why Democrats lost millions of voters to other candidates and to staying home um, because at the end of the day like I said the numbers don't bear out needing to right. get these white men back the numbers bear out needing to figure out why people who otherwise voted for 
the Democratic Party did not come out. And as I point out, and Chad pointed out, and I'll repeat, a lot of that has to do with voter suppression. I'd love to get Chad back in on that. But if you look at a state like Pennsylvania, where there is no voter ID laws, you still had a massive turnout problem. Um, we have a very special caller on the line. We have WHCR's very own station manager, Professor Angela Harden, who would like to let her voice be heard. Hi, Professor Harden. Morning. Hi, how are you? Thanks for calling Great in. Show, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Am I in trouble? Um, I wanted to add, I agree with what Alyssa's saying, but I wanted to add that I believe that Republicans stole those elections. Um, if you, There's a book. I interviewed the guy on uh, Harlem Beat which is my show, my radio journalism classes show. And I interviewed him about his book, Code Red. And he said that since the electronic voting machines were introduced in 2000, the Republicans have stolen at least 125 elections. They've sold governorships, the state attorney, the secretary of state positions, and positions in local government, 125 of them. And he said, because listen, when you vote on those electronic voting machines, they don't give you a piece of paper as a receipt. If you go take money out of the uh, ATM machine, it gives you a receipt telling you how much money you took. I don't understand why an electronic voting machine can't give you a piece of paper to tell you who you voted for. Thank you very and much I recall, for that. If you recall an election, mm-hmm. all you have to do is ask the people to come bring their receipt for who they voted for. That's okay? That's now... If you look at Greg Palace, he's done a whole lot of reporting on this. And he was just on another radio show this morning. He said the 75,000 votes were not counted in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit and Flint, Michigan were not counted. Trump only won by 10,000. Okay? So if they you stopped the Michigan counted, recount. Huh? And they stopped the Michigan recount. Exactly. Philadelphia said that Dr. Jill Stein wasn't. They were not going to recount because she didn't meet some deadline, and they said she was not affected by the election because she wouldn't have won anyway. <laughs> so she couldn't do it. Right. Ohio, I'm not exactly sure what Ohio did, but I think they were putting the ballots back through the same machine. <laughs> wow. So that not doing a hand recount. Thank you so much, Professor Hardin. You are absolutely right. And we actually talked about that at length on our last show. People can check that out on our archives, lyvbh.com, where we talked about the need for a recount, the need to audit every single election, and how, yeah, a lot of people believe that votes are definitely being either stolen or were not counted. So it's a very good point. I do want to move the conversation along. I know we have Chad back on the line. So, you know, we we talked about Democrats uh, losing across the nation on multiple levels. There's different theories why. Um, That leaves us to what to do now. The future of the Democratic Party is currently in our hands. So, you know, Chad, I want to throw this question at you first. Should we focus on reforming the Democratic Party? Um, If so, how can we do that? Or are you one of those people who are saying, you know what, enough is enough. I've been voting Democrat my whole life. I haven't seen personal changes. I think it's time for something new. What do you say, Chad? Uh, well, I'll pick option C. Uh, what's going on with uh, the Democrats is, uh, I mean, I firmly believe, and uh, I think you guys agree with me enough to go onto the same platform, which is, you know, the Democratic Party was slew-footed. Uh, okay. I mean, like, the, you know, we talked about the fruit salad of all the different reasons that Hillary Clinton lost, and that's true, and each one of those factors is still in play. Uh, and uh, as it is right now, as I mentioned before, what we saw in North Carolina with the Republicans changing the rules so that the Democratic governor doesn't have the same power anymore 
we're going to see that from the Trump administration. They're going to start changing the rules. Uh, hello? You're still there, Chad. Continue. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, we're going to see people changing the rules. So um, the Democratic Party is now forced into a corner and now needs to change, whether it wants to or not, which is a shame because there's a lot of, a lot of parts about it that was actually working fine. Uh, but as it is right now, uh, you can't drive a car once your wheels have been knocked off of it. And that's what the Democrats are now dealing with. So we're going to have to see completely new leadership. We're going to have and we don't know who that is yet. People are talking about Kamala Harris. People are talking about Cory Booker. Those are great choices. But if you look back historically, uh, when you have someone rise up, from the Democratic Party and take over and lead them back into power. It's usually somebody you don't you don't see coming. Uh, thank you so much for that, Chad Stanley. I want to throw that question at you: Should we be focusing on reforming the Democratic Party from the inside out, or are you saying you're done, you're through, and it's time for underrepresented people to form their own party and work for our own interests? So yeah, that's kind of the place that I'm at right now. I don't necessarily know if I want to stay with the Democratic Party. They haven't represented people like me. And when I say people like me, I don't just mean a person of color or a black man. I just mean an underrepresented person, someone who is not a rich millionaire. They haven't really done a good job of that. They're, they've been puppets and they haven't stood up. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by a lot and they're still pussyfooting with Donald Trump. So if they can't even stand up to Trump when they have nothing to lose, why should I want to stand with them? Right. I mean, I hear that, but I'll disagree with you on that. And simply because like uh, the way our constitutional system is built and people don't like to hear this. And I've said it numerous times. and I did a whole quickie on it that you can check out about the 12th Amendment, which is the way our constitutional system is built is to be a two party system. The 12th Amendment essentially says that if no person gets 270 votes, the election goes back to the House. If you have a situation where the Democratic Party splits in two, one of two things is going to happen. Either a you're going to have a situation like you did with the Whigs where the Democrats are going to cease to exist and a new party is going to rise and is essentially going to be the Democrats, right? I mean, because that's exactly what happened when the Whigs fell. Uh, you know, like, w that's what we usually see in this country, which is that we go back, always revert back to a two-party system. A third party rises, people join that party, and then another party ends up dying off and you're left back with two parties. The other thing that's going to happen, if the first thing that I just mentioned doesn't happen, which is if the Democratic, par Democratic Party splits and people like yourself decide to leave the party and go start something else, you're going to have a situation where the Republicans are just going to win. And they're going to win, and they're going to win, and they're going to win, because your third party is not going to have the, the enough oomph to be able to win any real votes, or it's going to have enough oomph that it's going to send every single election to the House, and based on the gerrymandering and situation we have now, the House will always pick a Republican, or B, like I said, the third party will rise and the Democrats won't exist anymore, which is going to lead you back to the same two-party system you're in now. So, I mean, I understand your frustration I understand why you're where you're coming from and why you would feel like, you know, the Democratic Party hasn't done anything for me and I should want to start my own party. At the same time, I think you have to realize that our constitutional system just isn't built like that. And to me, it's more important for us to work from the inside out and to fix that the problems um, that are internal and to take back the power within ourselves through the party versus potentially splitting the party and finding ourselves even more out of power and just letting conservatives walk all over us from now until eternity. I'm not really interested in tone and line for a bunch of tone deaf problematic white people so yeah i'm seriously considering leaving the democratic party i have to be words for you working families party and that's not to say that i'm going to join that party but they are building power through a party starting off locally and we can do the same thing and then hopefully at some point overtake the democratic party or force them 
because we have so much power in people to start adopting our policies and our positions. Well, well, I'll say this. A lot of people are feeling like that. And it touches on something you spoke about earlier. Listen, when you talked about dark money and that seemed like it was the only way for Democrats to start winning elections again, they had to get their hands dirty. The our politics, politics is a dirty game. And in order to win, they had to tap into those millionaire and billionaire donors and start funding campaigns and, and getting these votes out. But I would say, I think it's compromised the moral integrity of the Democratic Party. I think that they are so far tied to these lobbyist groups that, you know, they won't come out and vote against TPP. They won't come out and vote against hydrofacking. They have these donors. Politics is a dirty game. I don't think it can be reformed. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying that I, too, would join another party because I understand the, the, practic the practicality behind that. And I understand you need people with loud voices who aren't on the inside to start speaking out and working with those insiders. But I will say that moral compass is no longer there. And if we are going to continue to vote Democratic, our interests aren't going to be heard and represented as they should. I mean, I would disagree to the point of like, you know, who is the Democratic Party? It's made up of people and it's made up of different politicians. And there may be some Democrats that have their moral compass where other people haven't. But here's the thing that I want to remind people, which is people to all too often look at politics so ideologically, which is like, it's my positions and this is what I care about. And if if the person who I was considering voting even strays even just a little bit, um, like then I can't put my support behind him. And th at the end of the day, politics is ideological, but it's also a pragmatism game. And this comes to your point, which is if Democrats would have ignored the dark money. And uh, listen, I think Citizens United is a bad decision. I think dark money should be out of politics, period. But that is a whole separate conversation. But like just to get back to your point, if Democrats would have ignored the dark money and not taken any money at all, then they wouldn't have been able to compete with Republicans at all. You would have seen them even more out of power, maybe not than you're currently seeing them, but you they wouldn't have been able to hold power as long as they did. And it's I'm not saying like two wrongs make a right, but it's like at the same time, you can't not compete, right? And so like you have to look at this from a pragmatic circumstances well. Now, you know, like I said, we should really talk long and hard about Citizens United and what it has done to pervert our electoral system. At the same time, if you think that Democrats were going to be able to compete in elections without be taking money from big donors, then you're like living in a fantasy world. That's not Stanley, 10 seconds. We're wrapping it up. 10 second response. Who cares about dark money? The, the Democratic Party is problematic on way more levels than dark money. Real quick, just uh, elaborate on that really quickly. Like they've 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 pussyfooted on race, they pussyfooted on women's issues, they pussyfooted on foreign policy you issues. See they, like they, 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 the Who's Republican they? establishment, Alyssa. Sorry, the Democratic establishment. They are the ones. They have been weak. They don't stand for anything except for their interests, and that is the problem. I don't care about dark money. You you have to play the game to win the game. I understand that, but they have not stood up for working class people, and that is why so many working class people have left them. I mean, like or, look at somebody like, like John Lewis, right? Or, we, like, we do, Alyssa, the establishment. I'm just I'm just pressing you. Like, but but Alyssa, we do have to wrap it up. I do understand that, guys. Unfortunately, we have to bring this to a close because we do have to get to our last and final segment with our special guest, Laura Land. But before we do, I just want to say this is a conversation that obviously needs to keep going and will keep going on when it comes to the future of the Democratic Party. I will say that, you know, something uh, Stanley said not too long ago that really resonated with me. He said, you know, I can't accept I can't separate my identity from my politics. Right. So when we hear Democrats and people like Democratic leaders like Joe Biden 
and saying like let's stop playing identity politics and let's start speaking speaking to all people well i would say first of all all people do have an identity and i think that if democrats were doing a good job in not only representing the interests but messaging them then it, that would be another way to start to win back uh, uh, votes win the millennial vote over uh, continue to win over hispanic votes which we see have had voted in a more of a rate to uh donald trump than they did with Mitt romney um so you know it's it's a lot of things there but i think that if we continue to press the democratic party and even threaten to give our votes somewhere elsewhere maybe they'll start to speak up with louder voices for our interests on that note we do have to take a quick break but don't go anywhere when we come back we're going straight into the dreamer and do our series right here on let your voice be heard whcr 90.3 fm new york And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Thank you so much for hanging with us. And if you've been tuning in, you just heard a very intense and lively spirited discussion about the future of the democratic party i know we here at let your voice be heard had a lot more to say and we'll be continuing to follow that issue but for now we're finally getting to our very special in-studio guest we have laura land in studio with us she's been sitting here amidst the madness <laughs> um very patiently um waiting Sorry, i know right uh, stanley had to apologize no, no, <laughs> i was captivated by that conversation oh well thank you so much so so laura is actually a certified Ashtanga yoga teacher and she's a business owner. Uh, she's on a mission to heal and empower the community here in Harlem as well as the world. Now back in June 2011, Laura opened up Land Yoga, which is a yoga arts and wellness center in the heart of Harlem. She also developed a community program a number of them. Uh, one of them was Harlem Earth Day, Soul Fest, and Women Who Wow. And before she settled in Harlem, she taught yoga and mindful living around the world. She even spent three months in post-genocide Rwanda bringing yoga to he to the survivors. Uh, she also went to India, where she worked with HIV-positive children bringing yoga and meditation back in 2008 and 2009 plus on top of that she has her own non-for-profit it is called three and a half acres yoga yoga which she helps underserved communities improve critical life coping skills and the organization works with harlem youth and local uh, law enforcement inspiring connection through mindful practices. So when do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> so thank you so much again, Laura, for, for joining us here. She is, again, our official dreamer and doer. The last dreamer and doer we have of 2016. And we always like to go out the year with a bang. So a rising could, dog pose. Right. So it, <laughs> that was a good one. So it, it couldn't have gotten any better with you. So I wanted to start off by talking about land yoga studio that's located on frederick douglas boulevard again right here in harlem when and why did you decide to open up a yoga studio here in harlem well um i moved to harlem first and i always say i was called here i really don't know i was just 
set on living here. I had been abroad in Rwanda and India for a year, like you talked about, and I had been priced out of my Brooklyn apartment, and I was like, where am I going to go next? And Harlem kept calling my name. So I moved here um, about two years before I actually opened the studio, even a little bit longer, and I walked around the neighborhood, as you do when you walk around a new neighborhood, and get to know the people and, and the services here, and I just thought, wow, you know, this community could use a yoga studio. And I, I actually felt sick to my stomach, like, I have to do this thing. I'm in the place, the right time, the right place. It, I have the skills to do it. Almost in that moment when you're like, I don't want to do this. Don't let this be on me, <laughs> you know, but so called to do it that I had no choice. Wow. So Harlem called you. Yeah. Wow. And you found such purpose here. Now, with the studio here, do you offer um, ever offer free ca- classes or anything like that? Yeah, we do. The free classes that we offer are often outside the studio, um, in the parks, in the schools, uh, all over Harlem. And sometimes in the studio as well. You know, we do uh, scholarship students uh, once in a while um, who show that they really want the practice. You know, we want the studio to be open to to anyone that really wants it. Um, And then again, we do a lot of that uh, free offerings through the nonprofit. Well, why do you think it's so important for you to bring yoga, this historical spiritual practice here to Harlem? I have seen through my life, through this practice, what it has done for me. And then I went out in the world and I saw what it could do, even in the most dire circumstances. And I, I witnessed that. And so when I decided to make Harlem my home, that's what you do in your home. You know, I really believe in giving back in your own community and like that circle of that and where you can be every day. I can't be in India every day. I can't be in Rwanda every day. And there's there are issues with nonprofits and service work where you're going around the world because you're leaving people and you need to stay, right? You need to stay and be there every day to build trust and to build longevity um, within a program that you start. And sustainability within that programming. Some of the long-term goals we have are to teach our students to be teachers, right? So to give them job and empower them to be the teacher, right? I don't want to keep teaching. Let them teach. No, that's very true. Alyssa? Yeah, and I think you've touched upon some of this. But, of course, I, I, I have to ask the difficult questions, which is, um, you know, obviously you're in Harlem. She asked about free classes. There's always this issue of gentrification when you come to Harlem and you open up something like a yoga studio. Um, and it seems to me like you have good intentions and that you want to empower people. So how do you reconcile the issue of gentrification with what you're doing and trying to bring yoga to Harlem to somewhere where you love and where you now live? No, absolutely. It's a fair question. I'm a white woman, as you see. So, I mean, I, Puerto Rican. <laughs> I try to get away with that sometimes. Uh, <laughs> after this vote, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to be in that category. Um, you know, that's true. That's true. And I think uh, it's very important to be of your community, to listen to the community, not to feel like you're going in and I'm here to fix anyone. Um, I come here with a skill that, you know, I have studied for many, many years. Um, I actually uh, teach and study a very specific kind of yoga called Ashtanga Yoga that you can only learn in India. There are not that many people that have this skill. If I can bring it to my community um, and people want it, and I'm not pushing it on anyone, but if someone comes to me for that skill and I can bring it here, then then I'm being of service, you know, And, and certainly it's a choice. You don't you don't have to take yoga. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> um I actually have done yoga before. Um they kicked me out because I kept grunting, but not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I have yeah. never, never done yoga. So what has been some of your some of your experiences or what's been the community's response to the 
the new yoga shop store. Studio. The studio. <laughs> her yoga studio is actually not that new, but how has the community been responding to no, it? No, I had an incredible response um, from day one, I have to say. And and honestly, when I first moved to Harlem, I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't as educated in race issues. Um, and there was a lot I had to learn, and I'm still learning. I mean, we are always learning and growing and and these issues are very complicated especially you know if you weren't raised and grown up around a lot of people of color you know which I wasn't you know so I had to learn um, issues that I didn't understand you know and I'm still learning and I still make mistakes so I feel really grateful that I've been welcomed here um, I guess I'm doing something right I strive to do better <laughs> and, um, and I'm learning as I go and and you know we do we make mistakes but the important thing are conversations right the important thing are conversations like this and and to be honest and open to learning and to uh, and to admitting when we do make our mistakes definitely so I want to talk about your non-for-profit I know at one point uh, you were do you were servicing the LGBTQ youth uh, who suffer from AIDS and HIV how would you say yoga and and your organization help these people in particular? Yeah, well, now, finally, the science behind yoga is really coming out. So, um, and the science behind stress as it relates to illness. Um, you know, we say that all the time, like stress is a killer and stress leads to, you know, all these illnesses. But I, I don't think we take it in as serious as it is. Um you know, when you have the stress going on in the body, a lot of things are happening, right? With hormone secretion, with your um, your heart rate. And so yoga is really answering that. It's really answering that. So it, it, it has, my teacher always said before we even did the studies that yoga is a science and that one day they will come and show that through study. So now we're seeing that, um, you know, it can really reduce some of the symptoms of these illnesses, um, which are brought on by stress. Certainly when we're not healthy, um, there's a lot of anxiety around that, especially, you know, if we are going through dying, which, you know, once we're alive, we are going through dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, just helping people to take a breath um, and to reduce their stress and helping them to think more clearly because when you're stressed, you can't make good decisions. And I think that's one of the greatest things that we offer through yoga is giving people a space to think to look inward and to get clarity. Do you think that LGBTQ youth in particular are in need or or, or could really appreciate this service in particular? I do. I do because I think especially the trans community right now, they have a really hard time um, getting jobs, right? Because we know this. There's lots of studies on this. You know, people hire for likability and they hire people that seem the same as them, that they could relate to. And so if you have someone sitting in front of you that you can't identify their gender or they confuse you, you know, they're less likely to get hired. Um, and so again, like they're struggling, right? Not hired, not, you know, you don't have enough money. You're not, you know, accepted. So, so what do you do particularly for those type of people? Well, just that we, my organization is specifically partnered with organizations like Harlem United and their home center, which serves that community. So, um, we're really available to serve the LGBTQ communities in, in Harlem. Um, we've also worked with Ali Forney Center and, um, and I've received a couple emails and calls in the past week for some other um, LGBT youth organizations that are asking us to come in. Um, It's just the same things we would do for anyone. It's just that we're really looking at specifically people that are having a really tough time just going through life and specifically people that might come in contact um, with local law enforcement to 
be in a better state. So some of the organizations that we're talking to right now are like the Justice Court. Um, so people coming out of incarceration, mm. um, trying to reintegrate, just dealing with that daily stress. So again, giving them a space to breathe, giving them a space to think, um, reducing that stress. Um, and remember, when you're not stressed, you're presenting a different version of yourself, which is also mm. helpful. It's so true. Can I just say, I got to the studio extra early. I don't know if you guys noticed how, like, chippy I was. I felt like a different version of myself. Because, like, it's hard enough for me to get somewhere on time. But early, she's I was like, time nowhere. I was like, hold on. Is she this how today. it feels she to be early? Literally. Mm-hmm. Stanley, quick question. Quick answer. Okay, so you oh, did no, have, I a question. have a question. Yeah, so one of, one of the questions I had for you is, like, you're dealing with people who are facing a lot of trauma. So, and... And I, t- I take it that we're similar in that we absorb energy. And that sounds really weird when I say that out loud. But, like, how is it, like, dealing with that, like, trying to work with someone who's dealing with that trauma and then not being overburdened by that, that, that pain, that energy? That's a great question. Uh, and I train teachers how to teach yoga specifically to uh, trauma populations. So it's a different training that we have to give them. Um, and the first and most foremost thing is self-care, right? So you have to come, you have to be doing the work yourself. If you're not doing the yoga, if you're not doing the breathing, if you're not in the right space, don't come in and try to fix someone else. Else, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about. Because if you have inner resentment, like, oh, I, I wish I was home sleep or something, people feel that, mm-hmm. right? And and they, they feel you coming in with that. And you, you're better to just leave them to work on themselves. We told Stanley that today. I have a hangover and <laughs> when I he came in, crushing it right now. Like, okay? literally. But continue. Thank you so much for just preaching. We needed to hear that. Thank you. Well, the other thing is, right, we're, that's the ideal. We're not always our best perfect self. Sometimes we're hungover. Sometimes we're going to get enough sleep. But when you have the craft right, also you can get through that, right? Exactly. So if you have your craft on, then, you know, you don't even feel that because when you get in there you're like in that zone you're in that mode um and then when you come out you've got to you got to let it go right you got to let it go and it's a lot about knowing that we're all in process not taking it with you um forgiving yourself knowing that your intentions are right and that we make mistakes and that we're learning and growing and healing together so not as if lara wasn't already bomb and doing everything she's also no the new phrase millennial term is bomb not the bomb stanley it's just bomb so anyway i was born in in the 80s i'm a 90s kid (laughs) well hey so uh, somebody taught me that but hey it's caught on i want to say on top of everything else she's also been working as a yoga activist to fight uh, human trafficking. Can you talk more about your work as this uh, yoga activist stopping uh, uh, human trafficking? Well, Yoga Stops Traffic, which is not my organization, but it was an organization started by Ashtanga yoga students in India. Um, again, with this idea that when you're in a community, you're going there very often. And, you know, in my tradition, we I go to India every year to continue to study with my teacher, as many Ashtanga yoga students and teachers do. Um, when you see something going on in that community, which has given you so much, I mean, it's literally given us our livelihoods by giving us yoga. Um, we shouldn't just take from the community, but we should be aware of what's going on there and give back as much as possible. So um, there, there's a human trafficking problem all over the world, frankly. Um, it's it's very much so in India. Um, and so that's what some of the students got together to really help with that issue there. And and I help with it here as much as I can. Now, don't you guys have a, a, a global stop trafficking day? Yes. So can you talk more about that and what you do uh, during this day in particular? So Yoga Stops Traffic, um, yoga studios, specifically Ashtanga Yoga Studios around the world, um, they do don- classes where they donate the money to um, to help 
rescue, actually this organization India does is it rescues um, young girls who have been trafficked and sometimes boys as well. Um, it gives them a home and puts them through school. Um, so it's pretty amazing what they do. I mean, they literally go in and raid. Um, they have to go in and do raids to rescue wow. these children. Yeah. Have you seen that or, or participated in that in any way? Well, or do you no. just do you just work with the victims after they've been rescued? She's Is that what you do? Team six. <laughs> I have been to uh, to the homes where they where they go um, after. I mean, they they mo- mostly can't go back to their original home for many different reasons. The stigma um, in in India, particularly, you know, if they. Um, had already been trafficked. Also, sometimes, unfortunately, the parents have sold them into um, into this life, you know, based on false information, but still the value of, especially the value of a girl, um, not where it should be, all over the world. Um, so sometimes they'll sell them into these drug trafficking, uh, sex trafficking rings. So a lot of times they can't go back home, but there's, a, you know, a really beautiful facility group home. They get great education. And now um, they're doing a lot of education through this organization, Odinati, on um, to teach people, don't sell your children. They're not going to a good place. You know, um, the value of a girl uh, and especially we're still worth something, even if we've been through a trauma. Right. So right. all these sort of basic things that we know, but they're not basic if you haven't been taught. Well, you know, you're doing so much um, here in Harlem, around the world, India, as you spoke about. What do you dream to do as our dreamer and doer? What is it that you are aspiring to do? Oh, thank you. You see, I'm smiling because I love to keep dreaming and keep building. Um, and, you know, the studio, it's five and a half years old. Um, it's doing really well. I, I give so much thanks for that. Of course, we want more and more people to keep coming in. And I've started doing more and more trips around the world, taking people to places that have a really charged energy to help open your mind, transform your energy, see things differently, um, and bring home the best parts of that place. So we're, we're going to Iceland this summer. So wow. Some spots if you want to join me. Wow. I mean, uh, Selena, maybe. I know, but maybe. Is a layaway for the tickets? <laughs> Stanley wants to know if there's a layaway plan. Listen, yes. I've been actually teaching people, you know, how to manifest more money and how to put away and say, instead of gifts, ask for some help with your travel this coming year, right? Because that travel stays with you forever. Travel is so important. You know, when you you read my story, that's what comes back to me as I hear my story, the impact that travel has had on my life and seeing different people. You know what else stays with you? What? Student loan debt. Well, (laughs) so Laura actually wrote a great article. It's called Why Why I'm Not Giving Gifts This Holiday Season and What I'm Doing Instead. And it talks about travel activism. So I would definitely recommend everyone check that out. We've tweeted that out on uh, Let Your Voice Be Heard, Be Heard underscore radio, as well as on our Facebook account. So, you know, unfortunately, we do have to bring this conversation to a close, but please let everyone know how they can get in touch with you as well as your studio. Thank you. Yes. Uh, my studio is landyoga.com. Um, and I'm at landlaraland.com, uh, laralandyoga, all over Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Definitely reach out. I'm really into Instagram right now, and I will look for you. Thank you so much, Laura. And I just want to say that I think that we can all take a page out of your book when it comes to not only, you know, uh, working in some type of livelihood and, and making sure that we can support ourselves, but being in touch with community. Don't just go somewhere and take, like you said, there is some way that we can give back, whether that means the homeless shelter down the street or mentoring that little girl who you always see by herself because she doesn't have enough parental support. 
supervision. There's a way to give back to the community. And I think that we have to stay in touch with that and make that our activism. Even if you're not a dedicated activist, there's something that we can all do to strengthen communities. And on that note, we do have to say goodbye for now. But don't worry. We'll see you in 2017. Let your voice be heard. Racism is a kind of prejudice associated with race, ethnicity, or physical characteristics. This kind of prejudice denotes that some races or ethnic groups are superior to others.